Hello, I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives, a show about conversation, community, and the people that bring community to life. My guest today is designer Steve Gordon Jr. Steve Gordon Jr. is a man of many talents, creative agency founder, brand architect, sneaker and apparel designer, DJ, author, and athlete. He founded his agency, Ridiculous Creative, in 2005. The author of 100 Habits for Successful Freelance Designers and 365 Habits of Successful Designers, Gordon's work has been featured in numerous design industry publications and annuals. His most recent limited edition sneaker collaboration was for Nike's Cultivator Codes capsule collection, inspired by travel and wanderlust. Steve, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. So describe that time when you first discovered you possessed a creative spark. The earliest I can remember, in terms of being aware of it, I think as as children we do as we feel. And so we all draw, we all sketch, we all come up with the craziest idea or we, you know, our, our GI Joes take over the, the, the doll set of your sister. You know, we all think creatively, but in terms of becoming aware of it, um, I want to say it was maybe late grade school, early junior high, uh, carrying around a notebook. And, uh, that's when I was really enamored with graffiti and, and how letter forms fit together. And so I remember being, uh, with my dad, uh, he was a security guard over at uh, what used to be Flanagan High School. And I would sit and the older kids would be at practice or I would I would go watch games. And even being an athlete myself, it was odd because I would be drawing in my book. And that was the first time I realized that I can do something that most people don't either understand or can't do. And to me, that was when I became aware that I had that I possessed that capability. Were other people around you aware of this as well? Did they did they cultivate it within you, or was it a surprise to people? You know, uh, I think it was a surprise because I had been running track since I was eight years old. Um, my dad was an athlete, and so it was the assumption that I would be too. I was, you know, a beanpole. I looked like a Disney character. I had this massive head and this skinny body. Um, and I could run and, you know, we would challenge each other in the street to run from here to there. Okay. How fast are you? So everyone knew I was an athlete, but then I think you get pigeonholed a bit, uh, because people are a bit uneasy when someone seems to possess unique capabilities in more than one area. And my mother warned me of that. She said, you know, I, I don't know if she realized it. Now that I'm a parent, I can see it in my daughter. And my mom told me that I would have a problem choosing and having people understand that if I wanted to do more than one thing. Um, but some cultivated it. For instance, uh, Houston Alexander is a longtime friend. And he was one of the ones that helped me kind of refine my uh, artistic skill. Most people don't realize he's a fantastic artist. Um, they they see, you know, the the MMA fighter and he's, you know, built like a like a brick house. But uh, he's actually quite the artist and dancer and other things. So I think I gravitated toward or people gravitated toward me who were of like capabilities, who had multiple talents who may have felt um, 
a bit excluded or or odd to have so many talents when most people were trying to find one. What was the context of your upbringing? So you were you were born in Omaha. So let's yes, let's sir. start with that. Okay, uh, born in North Omaha, as as best I can remember, my mother would always tell me I was born at the old St. Joe because at the time there was a new St. Joe, which is now no longer there. No St. Joe. No St. Joe. <laughs> um, but yeah, born and raised in Omaha, Nebraska. Um, grew up my entire um, childhood and adolescent life, teen life in uh, North O right off of Lake Street in that center right around Yale Park which was an amazing find that I found out years ago or years later, pardon me, um, from Othello Meadows, who was doing some research for what would become the Highlander neighborhood. And he had a park registry. And he said, do you realize the park you lived by was called Yale Park? And the irony of a park like that being right in the middle of the hood. Um, I lived in Tommy Rose Garden Apartments and uh, in between that and Hilltop, uh, the project uh, called Hilltop was Yale Park right there, Salem Baptist Church, the old Salem Baptist Church, their original building. And so uh, I spent the majority of my life right there, uh, right around 34th and Lake, 34th and Grant, um, the son of a Sunday school teacher and a preacher, which um, had its challenges because these were pillars of the faith community of the church we went to, of the neighborhood, they tended to be in in our eyes, in the children's eyes, on a soapbox or 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 a pedestal, should I say, not a soapbox, but a pedestal. And uh, that was probably unfair of me to put them there because that caused some trauma later when you find out parents aren't perfect, but parents in the church they're not perfect. Oh my goodness, you know. So, you know, I'm the son of a preacher man, and so. Uh, <laughs> preacher's kids are the worst i can uh i can attest to that <laughs> we we've got a dark side <laughs> on and on um public school educated until i got out of lewis and clark and was supposed to go to central high school and my mother uh, put the kibosh on that and sent me to creighton prep after creighton prep athletic scholarship to so nebraska so before we yeah before we get into the college years and yeah. um what was life like? And you, can you sort of describe some of the experiences and, and you know, the kind of yeah, activities a, you got up to? There's a duality to it that is more frightening when I look back on it than living through it, although I should have been shaken up a lot more then. Um, and that can kind of speak to the environment that so many young people grow up in. Um the things that I saw, the things that I heard, the things that I, I went through growing up uh, in in my neighborhood, I, I wouldn't wish on anybody. But when you're there, it's almost as if you don't know you're poor until you see someone who's rich <laughs> or has more. And then you begin to question it. Other than that, it's your norm. It's all you know. And I think that, you know, childhood was fun. It was great. Looking back now, like I said, I, I can't believe my mother let me do this. Or maybe she didn't let me, but we went out and did it anyway. Um, there were so many situations where it could have gone the wrong way. So many situations where it did go the wrong way and I still fortunately made it home. Um, yeah, it was it was tough. 
it was it was tough, but you didn't know any better at the time. So it's hard for me to say it wasn't enjoyable because I I, I have really fond memories of growing up, especially in North O. Like I, I claim North O to the heart. I love I love where I grew up and I, I still to this day bring my wife down to see it because she's not from Omaha and she's from a small town, a tiny country town in northeast Nebraska. And ironically, her favorite food is timeout chicken because I bring her down north all the time because I'm proud of where I came from. Uh, but it was tough. It was tough. So for those people perhaps that don't know, uh, you talked about heading towards Central High, mm. but your mother directing you instead to Creighton Prep. And I just want to draw a distinction because Central mm-hmm. is part of the Omaha Public School District right. system. Right. And Creighton Prep is a fee-paying um, school? Is yeah, it a private it school? definitely or a private school. Okay. Uh, yeah, private school and uh, considered one of the one of the better private schools actually in the country. Um, so, so what was motivating this center? So did, did you like that idea and what was driving your, your <laughs> no. mom to do this? No, no, no. For one, there were not going to be any girls. It's an all-boys school. And I mean, I had gone through... The awkward stages of sixth grade, seventh grade, junior high, what they call middle school now. And I'm like, okay, I'm finally ready to see girls. Like, I don't look awkward anymore. (laughs) Oh, I'm going to an all boys school? What is that? You know, that just the culture shock of that alone. Then you add on to that, that at that time, late 80s, early 90s, there were maybe only 10 to 15 minority uh, students on the whole in a school of a thousand people. And so we, we literally banded together and had a minority table. And so my freshman year was horrific by, by memory, (laughs) probably not as bad as I make it out in my head, but in my head, it was pretty traumatic because I was sent someplace I didn't want to go to be around people that didn't want me there and be reminded that's when I found out I was poor. <laughs> when you see the environment that others come from and the things that others have uh, at their disposal, uh, socially, monetarily, you know, even just fam- familial support, it tends to darken your view of it. So that first blush of a, of a much bigger world was frightening, and I didn't like it at all. Have you spoken to your mother in in your adult life just to talk about what was what was going through her head oh absolutely yeah Yeah, we we even then uh even now i give her praise for doing it now because i see what she was doing um she was introducing me to the way the world works um whether we like it or not our lifestyle our system in this country is built a certain way and this is how it works it's not exactly a meritocracy. And she told me her quote, and I tell anyone who asks, when she sent me to prep, she said, this is all I have to give you. This is the chip that you put on the table. What you make of it after this is up to you. You can either play the game or sit on the side, but the game will be played with or without you. Her exact quote. And that still to this day gives me the chills because she's absolutely right. That was the turning point of learning to exist within a system, whether I like it or not. 
to acknowledge the rules of the system and play it accordingly. Yeah. feel as if, and this is maybe jumping a little too far ahead and I'll reel this back in a while, but do you feel as if you stepped up to play this game, but you've actually changed the rules of the game that were laid out in front of you? In your life, you've spent the last three decades changing the rules of the game you've been expected to play. Absolutely. Um, That was was a strange realization. Uh, I think it started in college knowing that, that, uh, you know, you have to know the rules of the game to change them. So I, I have to sign up to participate. This is this is the world we live in. Okay, then what things can I hold on to that are like my touchstone, that keep me grounded, that keep me authentic? What things can I change? Should I change uh, to to better participate, to gain advantages? That's the part that people don't often talk about, but opportunism is real and and that's the world we live in it's you know to get ahead to do this to get that job to do these things there are concessions that you make and uh how much of yourself can you hold on to to stay authentic so that those things don't become the core of yourself they just become a costume that you put on or the proper attire you know if you're going swimming you wear swim trunks if you're doing construction you wear safety gear you know so you put on these things but it doesn't change who you are and i think that was the process that i was going through to learn that so you were studying but also an accomplished athlete too tell us a little more about the beginning of your as it were athletic career And how that's unfolded over over the years. Yeah, um, started doing again. Track and field was my main sport, and uh, that started around eight years old. I was at church, running in the street, racing someone, and I was just about to get the throttling of a lifetime because I was in my good clothing. And a lady named Margie Clark stopped my mom and said, "He's just doing what God gave him a gift to do." bring him to the track next week. She gave her the address and uh, it was history. Fell in love with it. You know, uh, you mean I can come out here and run as fast as I possibly can and someone's going to tell me that's a good thing? Sweet. I'm in. Basketball, football, other things followed. And and where, where I'm from, uh, Biggie Small said it best. Either you are slinging crack rock or you've got a wicked jump shot. 
you know, that there's this ideal that getting ahead is going to be one of two things. And I was decidedly a good athlete, and that was going to be my ticket to better things. I made no apologies about it, and I hit it full steam ahead. Um, through high school, uh, state champion, traveled, uh, saw the country by way of track meets and travel. That was eye-opening. That began my, my wanderlust, even in its infancy of uh, there's places outside of where I live. To come home, it it definitely made home feel a little bit tighter, a little bit smaller. I want to go see more of this. And so, uh, yeah, that was that was the beginnings. And then on through college, ended up being better than I even imagined I could be, which that took some some learning that that was a process of learning that, okay, there's more in me than even I realized. So what do we do with this? How do we again, parlay this into other things? How do we stay authentic to it? Uh, you know, being able to go places that I've been and uh, and get the accolades that I did on on that field of play, even in my head as I was doing them, others would assume that you knew, like, oh, you think you're good. I'm like, no, I'm really shocked by this too. This is fantastic. So like, it was euphoric and learning how to handle that was, was a process. So, um, yeah, yeah. The athlete in me is probably the closest to my core self. I'm sure we'll get into it later, but that's why my love of sneakers is so profound because this was the footwear. This was the thing. Um, I didn't even need a ball. I just needed a pair of sneakers and some place to run. And to put this in context, you you mentioned traveling around the country, but in addition to that, you all American. Yes. You, I think, were at a level competing for an Olympic berth. Yes. Yes. I was uh, earmarked as an Olympic hopeful. Getting that letter was an amazing day. But uh, yeah, Olympic hopeful in uh, the years of from 96 through 2004. Yeah. Even that, even as I say it now, I rarely say that to people. So it kind of takes me back a bit to even mention that because I don't always realize it. I don't always kind of sit and ponder that. But uh, yeah, some amazing things came out of running in front of the church that day. <laughs> <laughs> and it wasn't just running, right? Because uh, your core disciplines were in the um, sprinting, leaping, jumping. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I was a uh, an All-American long jumper. Um, could have been an all-American high jumper, but at the national meet, they are at the same time, and my coach wouldn't allow me to to do that. And I was a world-class triple jumper, so triple jump was my primary discipline. Yeah. What's happened to this? I mean, obviously, there's age. Yeah. Right. We yeah. Our, our bodies. Right. Um, uh, transform. Right. And so, how do you extend your athletic self, this right. authentic, true self, right. but acknowledging that we're not the same physicality that we right. were. Uh, that's the first thing, is the acknowledgement that things are different. You do, uh, I still compete as a master's athlete, uh, so I, I try to stay active. I've dropped the expectations, and it's definitely more for the love of the sport, uh, but it's fun, and, and you still set some bars of achievement for yourself. Um, but I think I extend that into 
my fashion, my personal style to maintain that um, it was never authentic to me to be a designer suit guy. I'd rather be a designer sweatsuit guy. <laughs> and so, uh, so yeah, I stay, I, I, I keep that. I take that with me. I love fashion. I love high end fashion, but I have to approach it in a way that is comfortable for me because that's so key to who I am. And also it's hard to hide. You know, if I go to a design conference, it's easy to see the six, four, 200 pound black guy in the room amongst those who are typically smaller. And that's not even a stereotype. I'm just a large individual and I stand out. You know, I, I joke with a couple of other friends who are, are former athletes and you know, enormously built and they're designers, enormously creative people. Uh, one of them has this massive tattoo on his back and we go to the gym, the gym or we go to the beach when we're at a conference and people see him, and he looks like someone else's bodyguard. <laughs> like, you don't realize that this guy is probably one of the best designers I've ever seen. But he battles with that also, that uh, how do you stay authentic to what you're built as, what, you, what you're meant to be, and then exist in a world that, uh, or in, in smaller subcultures that typically are more cerebral. They, they weren't the, uh, the jocks. And uh, I would get teased in college. Oh, my goodness. Constant teasing of I'm coming from art class. And, you know, my coach would ask, oh, did you draw a pretty picture today? And I would just let it roll off. I'm like, Yeah, I, I would. <laughs> I, I drew a pretty picture today. <laughs> so talk more then about let's 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 take that journey with okay. pretty, pretty pictures. Yeah. Uh, how did you move into design as a career? And what does design mean mm. in terms of your practice? Absolutely. Uh, moving into design from architecture, when I was at the University of Nebraska, they have a, a renowned architecture program. Um, the discipline I was going to move into would have been interior uh, design, interior architecture. When I transferred to the University of South Dakota for reasons of being able to uh, better afford college on a better scholarship for track and field, uh, they didn't have architecture and I didn't have the guidance at the time to look into programs, to look into things. I was making decisions based on sheer survival and not necessarily exploratory decisions of what would be the best scenario. So falling into design was actually the handiwork of who would be my counselor, uh, Jan Hildebrandt. Uh, at the University of South Dakota, we were we ended up being great friends. She was a great mentor for me. And when she heard I was an incoming former architecture student, um, she quickly drew some parallels for me that allowed me to be comfortable with that transition, the grid system, composition, you know, functional artwork. And I said, OK, I can do that. That that makes perfect sense to me, especially with the discipline in architecture that I was going into. And so that's how I made that transition. Um, design for me is less fine art, less art even, and more problem solving. So one one quote that I love, and, and I, I'm not sure I'm uh, attributing it properly, but I believe it was da Vinci who said that 
uh, design is the marriage between art and science. There has to be a solution that comes out of the end of design. If design isn't seeking to solve a problem creatively, then it is simply fine art. And so as a designer, I never really considered myself an artist. Um, I've had a gallery show and, and those, that was an amazing time. And my start was being able to draw and paint, but those skills moved themselves into design. And once into design, I craved the solution for a set of problems. the founding of Ridiculous. Mm. Did, did you have employment with an agency before that? I did. Okay. I did. And I, I often quip that the last job I had was the last job I had. <laughs> um, I never sought to be my own boss, but I knew that if being filtered through someone else's final judgment, words, if I wasn't in the meeting representing the idea that I was presenting, then it wasn't being justly presented. And so to do my best work, I needed to be able to authentically be myself, even in my discipline, my career discipline. And so I remember sitting in the car after being let go uh, from my my short stint. It was a trial period of six months this is when I knew I was a contractor and, and I'm like, okay, I can contract. I can not even freelance, but I can be a creative consultant, a designer of that, of that sort. And I remember sitting in the parking lot, just immobilized. I'm just sitting there thinking, okay, I don't want to go back. I, I don't want to simply look for another place of employment for reasons of only earning a paycheck. I know how to earn a paycheck, but this is my career. And so if it's going to be fulfilling for me, I have to do it my way. Not that it's the right way and not that I would advise anyone to do it the way I did, but this has to be my story. It has to be my way or else it's going to always feel as if it's being stifled. 
Is there uh, a story behind the name of your agency? So it's ridiculous, but it's R-D-Q-L-U-S. Yeah, that was uh, funny enough. I just wanted to put it on a license plate. (laughs) And, uh, you know, everyone has their catchphrase that they say almost uh, subconsciously or unconsciously. And, oh, that's ridiculous was something I would say in college all the time. And friends would always say, man, you, you just need to get that on a license plate. That was the joke because I said it all the time. And so I did. I figured out, okay, how can I get that on a license plate? Uh, you know, so take this vowel out, put that in, squish that together. Okay, R-D-Q-L-U-S. How many letters do we get on a license plate? Eight. Perfect. This is only six. And then for years, I never got it on the license plate. I only recently put that on the plate after maybe 15 years of using it as as a work moniker. Yeah. Uh, but used it when, you know, after the millennium, when we knew our computers were going to stay working, <laughs> the Y2K was not going to get us. Then uh, I started using it online as as my handle. And that's how it uh, kind of gained some steam. And and then I decided, OK, uh, I, I'm known for this in certain circles. So I'll just go ahead and push, you know, push the gas pedal on that. Talk a little bit more about the craft of being a businessman, Mm. and an entrepreneur? It's difficult because, again, I never saw myself as my own boss. I never considered that I was a startup. Long before that term became the, the buzzwordy moniker of new business, I just considered that uh, I wanted to ply my craft the best way possible. I remember getting some advice at a design conference from someone who had become a mentor and friend, uh, Kelly Goto uh, of Goto Media. And she said to me, you are not a company, but you can operate and run yourself as a business. And she's, she made the distinction that a, a company, like the word would suggest, is more than one person. You have a staff. You have multiple people working with you toward this goal. But you can do business as a single person, as a, as a singular entity. That helped a ton to frame how I was going to move forward because it felt right. It felt natural. And over the years, I've been asked, you know, why don't you grow the agency? Why don't you add staff? Or And because the answer is always because this is how I want to work. This is not uh, accidental. You know, I am a consultant who happens to consult on creative matters, on matters of design and problem solving and storytelling. And I would much rather be able to plug in to another corporation or another entity and help them out and then be able to very uh, cleanly exit the scenario and push them along. But the, the, the task of operating that business is difficult because it's not the first order of business, if you will. The bookkeeping, the marketing, uh, the the networking, the operational things, the the keeping of your own taxes and finances. I spend more time doing the business of running a business than I do the creative work that I sought to do. 
So it's uh, it can quickly become a scenario where you've shot yourself in the foot and you've gotten everything you asked for. <laughs> it's interesting to me that there is this similarity between being an athlete in an endeavor that is intensely individual. You may be part of a team, but track and field and especially triple jump, long jump, high jump, they're solo endeavors. Absolutely. And you're describing the same thing. You you want to plug in, yeah. but you you are a single business person. Yeah. yeah. D- does it speak to something about your deeper character that this is who you are? Um, not a loner, but someone who prefers to operate in control and maybe solo. Without a doubt. Uh, I battle with that because I am a social person. But when it comes to the task, when it comes to setting my mind to the goal, doing the work. Um, and, I, and I feel like now I'm even describing what would happen on the track. That's where I'm most comfortable. I played football. I played basketball. I played team sports. If no one's passing you the ball and the team loses, deep down you feel like I would have made that shot. <laughs> I mean, it's just me, but I would have made that shot. Um, now, as a, as a track athlete, I always had the proverbial ball in my hands and it was up to me. And fortunately for the larger balance, the larger percentage of my career, I made that shot. And so the same goes in business where if I'm responsible for me and making those decisions, um, I trust me. I, I know the skill set that I bring to the table. So client, you can trust me. It won't have to go through committee or various levels of approval. It's just me, and I'm working for you to solve this issue, to tell this story. That I can trust. That I feel good about. So, yeah, I believe it is at the core of who I am, the reason I operate the way I have for so long. Is there an experience or a project, a brand story that you've worked on that might illustrate perhaps either your ideal design collaboration projects or perhaps something that you've learned the most from mm, that's a good question um because the, there's so many varied uh projects that i've worked on there are some that i'm proud of that uh aren't really you know the the grand show of what i can do but they are important you know for instance i'm very very proud of the work that i've done with 75 north uh, othello meadow and his staff to brand Highlander and the the entire campus, uh, I continue to work on sub-brands for them as they grow and add amenities and things. Uh, I'm their, their first call for, for getting that done. And that's incredibly important work because I grew up just in back of where that property is. So to see to see something like that in my old neighborhood would be amazing. To be a part of something like that in my old neighborhood is almost uh, without words. And the fact that something that vast, that big a project with multiple uh, construction contractors, with uh, multiple agencies, funding sources, and all these things, and they entrusted me with what it was going to be called, what it was going to look like, um, that's something for a much larger agency. Let anyone, almost everyone else tell it. And the fact that one person could do it, 
uh, I'm glad it was me that that was able to to prove that point. And so, yeah, that's definitely one of them. Um, there's a few like that where I hope that they're going to be standing for a long time so I can show my daughter, like, you know, dad did something pretty cool. You know, when, when I'm in the office and I'm asking you not to come in, that's what I'm working on. Um, one other one would be uh, the, the Q uh, apartments in Exarban Village. That was a pretty radical concept for what they call apartment beige. The developer came to me and said, we want to avoid apartment beige. Everyone in the Midwest has beige oatmeal colored walls and and a, a logo that has something to do or a brand that has something to do with horses and bridles and very pastoral, but we live in the middle of a large metropolitan area. We need to shake it up. We want to do something that's uh, different, that's almost themed, but not so kitsch. I'm like, okay, let's let's work on it. And that was a very, very fun project to be able to do something that when Exarban Village was really just growing, it was vastly different. And for I was recently at UNO, I was speaking to a class and this flashed up on the screen and one girl raised her hand and she's frantically waving and she goes, oh, my God, I live there and I love it. And like, that's the that's the best response I could have absolutely hoped for. So, yeah, those those two projects really uh, allowed me to kind of spread my wings, show what I can do and prove that I can do it singularly. Um, not that that's the only way to do it, but the, the trust and the faith that I had in my skills and, and being that more solo minded person, uh, it worked for me in those senses. philosophy of sorts that underpins your creative work, your sort of brand aesthetic, how, how you see the world? Mm. It's, it would definitely be authenticity. You know, I can't, I can't change what I don't know, so I have to be aware. I can't be anything but myself. And you hear people say that a lot about keeping it real and keeping it this and doing that, but 
I don't have to try to be myself. I simply have to acknowledge who I am. And that goes into the work because I often ask my clients, instead of telling me, how are you different? I ask them a much different, much more difficult question of how are you exactly the same? Because once you acknowledge those tougher questions, your differences will shine through differences you didn't even realize you had. And so that uh, that speaks to how I get to the core of what even client work is about in, in keeping that authenticity and telling your true story about what it is you do, what your product is, what what your project entails. Um, most clients don't realize that the thing they make is not their product. The thing that they make will often service their product. You know, Starbucks coffee obviously sells coffee, but their actual product is a different thing. It's wrapped around camaraderie. It's wrapped around community. It's wrapped around coming together and talking. Most people blindly order their coffee, but they spend hours in the coffee shop talking and communicating with each other. So the actual product of Starbucks is different than what they sell. That's an an authenticity play. So if we're thinking authenticity and we're thinking Steve Gordon Jr., I think we have to talk about sneakers. Absolutely. <laughs> that's, uh, that's, that's probably the lifeblood of the operation right there. Yeah. I, so, uh, so like, where do we start with this? I mean, do we start with, um, athletic uh, days? Okay. I and can then tell you, tell us from there to Nike. The very first pair of real trainers that I had, two people were involved. And again, it, and in, in going back and thinking about it, it's amazing how these things are still tied to people. One of my mother's friends knew that I had a little bit of talent in track and field. And obviously, because of the upbringing, because of the struggles, we didn't have the money to get these things. And so she gave me a job at the uh, the housing project I lived in. My job was to go around and pick up trash earn a few dollars, and she would match those dollars to go buy my first pair of real trainers. And they were a pair of Nike Air Pegasus. And, oh, I loved them so much. I can still remember the color, this kind of oatmeal taupe with light blue. I loved them. And then one of my coaches, one of my club coaches growing up, with uh, I ran for the Midwest Striders here in Omaha. Uh, he had a pair of... Uh, of old Nikes in his trunk and he hadn't worn them because they were too small. And, uh, he gave them to me and that was my first real pair of running shoes and they were beautiful. I just remember thinking to myself, I never want to take these off. And that was a real love. Like, you know, I've, I've been accused of having Peter Pan syndrome and not wanting to grow up and all those things, but sneakers are authentically part of who I am. It's part of my history. Uh, indelibly so you can tell if I'm not comfortable it it wears right on the surface but uh, put me in a pair of sneakers and let me dress those up and I can take on the world that's how I feel yeah <laughs> so how did how did then this opportunity arise to take this clear passion into collaboration with Nike it, uh, in some ways, is a manifestation of that sort of Gladwellian 10,000 hours of 
I have this collection of sneakers and now it's really big and it's kind of sad. But if I keep pushing through, it's a legit collection and now it's this phenomenon. So you have to keep going, keep going, keep going truly authentically, because if you don't, it's a waste of money. But I truly love them and I can tell a story about every single shoe in my collection. So then a friend hears about this, someone that I'm working with, and she suggests that I should throw my name in the hat for this new program that's coming up. And I've never been one to do those kind of things because I never get picked and then it's a disappointment. <laughs> and uh I got picked this time. And so I was really excited because there are some who really like sneakers and then there's me. <laughs> And so I knew I'm like, this is speaking my language 1000%. Just give me a crack at it. And sure enough, it ended up being a really good experience and a good experience for them in the program. They called me back for my second collaboration uh, just this past year. And fingers crossed, I'll get another shot at it. It feels to me like this last collection you just did with, with Nike encapsulates or locates in one place all of your passions business creativity athletics feeling true to yourself absolutely and travel too yes sir. so explain just a little bit about what is the design of of this micro collection that you've right. contributed and what informed and influenced and inspired it this is the intersection of everything that I am. And it's for fear of sounding a little bit obtuse about it. It's almost spiritual. It's that point where it tapped into everything that I know about myself, everything that I acknowledge about myself as an athlete, as a creative, everything you said, and including travel, because travel was part of being an athlete. That was the exciting thing of packing a bag and getting on a bus or getting on a plane and going someplace to compete and on through college and then taking me overseas and as a coach even. And so uh, it was literally everything wrapped into one. I wanted to be able to kind of flex my creative muscles to show them what I was capable of. Because again, in that sense of this is an opportunity. I can take this someplace if I do this in a way that most others cannot do because this is my profession. Everything from the concept, the story, the design, and then the subsequent marketing leading up to the release and the post-release and all of that, it, it was amazing to be able to be the creative director for everything involved. What have you learned from all of these different experiences that you carry forward into the rest of your life? I don't know that it's profound, but it's true. Um, curiosity and consistency. I've, I've been curious my whole life. I always want to know. You know, I constantly want to figure things out. Sometimes to my own detriment, because some things I probably should leave alone. <laughs> but curiosity, always searching to find something. Maybe it's filling a void. I don't know. But I'm constantly curious. And then the consistency of 
doing the work or doing something I believe in, even when it doesn't seem to be panning out monetarily uh, or or even in a sense of pushing the career forward. I believe in it, so I have to keep doing it. I have to keep doing it. I have to keep doing it. In every scenario, no matter how painful, something always comes of that because you just got to keep pressing forward. So those are, those would be the two things that, that I kind of live by now. To listen to this show again and to hear past shows, download the podcast at iTunes, search for Live's radio show with Stuart Chittenden, and leave a review while you're there to let me know what you think of the show. I've been in conversation with Steve Gordon Jr. Steve, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me. We haven't even touched on a potential music career <laughs> and that interest. That was a that was a fun part. <laughs> That's the end of this week's show. The magnificent Marion Fay helped produce the show. Lives is an executive production of Squish Talks. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. Join me next week for more community, conversation, and the people that bring community to life. <laughs>